Hey guys, you're listening to Blockshots, a place where we share insights directly from the leaders and builders of the cryptosphere. This podcast is our latest media offering delivered to you by the CoinCode Cap team. So with us on the podcast today, we have Arthur Brightman, the co-founder of Tezos, which we're going to learn more about in the episode from Arthur himself. So Arthur, welcome to the Blockshots podcast. We're very glad to have you here. Why don't we start with a quick introduction for our audience and just a quick history of your involvement with the space and things you've done so far. All right. Thank you. Uh, glad to be here. So my name is Arthur. I was uh, born and raised in France. I uh, moved to the U.S. in my early 20s, uh, worked mostly in, uh, in finance, high frequency trading, market making. Uh, I also uh, worked a little bit in robotics at, uh, at Waymo. Uh, and I, I got interested in a space uh, fairly early on. I would say I was, you know, I, I, I was aware of it from the very beginning, but I didn't pay attention to it at all. I started paying attention to it in 2011, a little bit with uh, with Bitcoin. I had some ideas, was following it a little bit. I got deeper in um, 2013, 2014. Um, and for me, the attraction of the space was that it was at the intersection of there's a political project around cryptocurrencies. There's aspect of the theory of uh, money and banking. There are aspects of cryptography, decentralized uh, systems, um, distributed computing. All of that was super interesting to me. So I, I, I kind of in, fell into it. And uh, yeah, my, my interest early on was uh, especially around um, alternative design. So, you know, of course, Bitcoin was the, uh, and, and still is, um, the, the dominant cryptocurrency. But a lot of uh, research was starting to come out around how to um, better scale, how to have privacy, how to uh, have lower inflation, all of these um, different aspects. So that really got me interested. Uh, I started working on Tezos in 2014 and uh, the, the chain uh, launched uh, in 2018 and it has been running since. Awesome. That's that's a great starting point. So the first thing that I want you to talk about is a little bit about the concept behind Tezos. So as someone who was the chief architect behind the protocol, what motivated you to essentially start something? And I'm assuming like this is way back in 2014. So not a lot of proof of stake sort of blockchains existed. So what was the initial motivation behind Tezos? And what was it that you were trying to uh, accomplish at the time. Well, my motivation was um, I was looking at I was looking at all this research, and it all seemed extremely interesting. And I was really hoping that it would make its way into Bitcoin because I thought, look, um, it it doesn't make sense to have multiple chains. It doesn't make sense to have multiple cryptocurrencies, but it also doesn't make sense to give up on all of the research and all of the discoveries that are come, you know that are going to come out after bitcoin's release so how can bitcoin upgrade how can bitcoin adopt some of the best ideas out there and that led me to think about governance and how do you mean you know how do you have a blockchain that's upgradable while still remaining decentralized uh and and, and that's a tricky question because if you're um, if your upgrades are decided by hard forks, which is one strategy, you can be uh, prone to social takeover, and that's um, you know that, that's a, a thing that's commonly known in the Bitcoin uh, ecosystem. But in general, the answer is that you know you should not evolve at all, which I didn't think was acceptable. So that led me essentially to uh, to Tezos. It was an interesting uh, 
thought experiment of how do you build uh, governance for decentralized systems uh, so that they can uh, they can upgrade and evolve. Got it. So with that premise and considering the timeline that has passed since, I think we can very well say that the blockchain market, especially for L1, has evolved quite a bit. There's a bunch of competitors in the market right now. So how do you see Tezos standing between that market and how does it differentiate from what else is out there? Well, the Tezos ecosystem has done things that very few other ecosystems have done. Um, you know, it's an entire stack from, you know, it's, uh, it's networking layer, it's storage, it's indexers, programming languages, libraries. Um, there's very, very few ecosystems that have been able to deploy an entire software stack for interacting with an L1 chain. There's a lot of copying that's happening, which is fine. I think, you know, as a gross hack, you can copy what other um, people have done directly. It's, uh, it's one of the benefits of open source, but it doesn't, I think, let you uh, get to the next level. If if, if, if in your history, you've, you've, you've gone where you are by by, uh, by copying off of, uh, of some, somebody else. So realistically, if, you know, if you look at the ecosystems that have built the, the, the level of um, the level of integration that we have, it's, it's, it's very, very few. Um, and that gives me hope that in, um, when, when consolidation happens, because I think consolidation is going to come to a lot of L1s, mm, a lot of these CRM clones are not going to find a lot of uh, uh, reason to, uh, to exist. Whereas um, genuine ecosystems like Tezos that have been built from the ground up are far more resiliency to this type of consolidation. Right. So one thing that always comes up when you're talking about the L1 ecosystem is that one, there's Ethereum, and then there's like alt L1s. And alt L1s is basically everyone that's not Ethereum, right? So obviously, Ethereum right now is clearly leading uh, on a lot of the fronts in terms of both activity, value, everything. And with the merge, like coming ever closer, the argument to, you know, just stick to Ethereum, scale Ethereum through L2 is becoming like a very popular narrative. So how do you sort of like think about spending your uh, energy and time just, you know, growing Tezos when a lot of the market sentiment right now seems to just favor like a scaled up Ethereum as the future of this entire blockchain crypto industry? Well, the first thing is that if I was, uh, you know, if, 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 if I was dependent on Ethereum's promises to decide to do anything, I would never have done anything, right? You know, in 2016, uh, when I was talking about Tezos, uh, people were in two camps. They were saying, there's no point in launching a proof-of-stake protocol because Ethereum is going to move to proof-of-stake in six months. I have heard this for the past six years. I think it's truer now than it was in 2016. But still, at some point, you become desensitized to this. Uh, and the other thing is, well, people were saying is like, oh, there's no way you can launch proof of stake. If it were possible, Ethereum would already have done it. So I try to do what I do uh, without thinking too hard about Ethereum uh, itself, which is funny because, uh, you know, the, the category uh, Ethereum killer was not created by anyone building a, a competing L1. It was created by uh, people who were fans of Ethereum who dubbed the other ones Ethereum killer. And they were saying, oh, you're trying to be an Ethereum killer. I'm just trying to build a very really good blockchain and make it very compelling to use uh, for developers, for uh, users. And, you know, if people are happy to use a scaled up version of Ethereum, if and when it's available, um, that's great for them. I do think that people are going to not necessarily find uh, whatever they want 
with this scalar version of Ethereum, and I'm happy for them to come to Tezos and uh, and, and, and offer them what's not going to be available on this platform. That makes sense. Just so I can poke a little bit on that. In your mind, do you think that all these Ethereum killers, Alt and L1s, they're basically just competing for the second place? Or is it possible that, you know, there's a bull case where a blockchain like Tezos or a blockchain like Solana is somehow so much better and efficient for developers and users that it just overtakes Ethereum at some point? Like, Can you talk a little bit about the bull case for Tezos? Uh, yeah, of course. The thing that I remember, by the way, is that when Ethereum was coming out, uh, you had very uh, logical argument that people were making that Ethereum will never have any value because if there was any value in the technology, uh, people would relaunch it and uh, using uh, Bitcoin. And so, you know, of course, uh, you'd have uh, an Ethereum running with Bitcoin and not Ether and therefore there's no value in Ethereum. So uh, this type of absolutist arguments, I'm very familiar with them because they've been running for so long in the space and in practice, you know, Bitcoin never bothered to do this. Um, so it's like saying like, oh, is Ethereum, you know, like competing for the second place. And if you look at it, uh, if you ask Ethereum people, I would say, they, you know, they, they'll, they'll be, uh, they'll happily tell you that they want to flip uh, Bitcoin. They want to have the first place. So I think everyone's competing for the first place. Um, but it does, you know, it, 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 it doesn't mean that there's only a first place. You know, I, I, I do think that there's going to be consolidation and there's going to be a power law. I also don't think it's going to be all or nothing. Um, but in the same way that uh, there's no mathematical impossibility in Ethereum flipping Bitcoin, there's no mathematical impossibility in other L1s flipping Ethereum. It's quite possible. Uh, you know, uh, Ethereum right now has a lot of wind in its sails, but... I remember, you know, just just two years ago, that wasn't the case. So a lot of things can happen. Makes sense. So I think you're definitely correct with that, because in the past year, we've seen some of the other L1s like Solana and Avalanche getting like a lot of traction and Terra as well. So it's definitely possible to move uh, ahead really, really fast in a very short period of time. And if that happens, maybe in 10 years, we do see a flip right between some of these chains depending on who is superior so it also depends how, to... it also depends how early you think we are you know right now um a dap with more than a few thousand daily active users is considered to be a big dap and a big success um and you know we there are websites out there which have hundreds of millions of daily active users so you know in this respect uh there's basically five orders of magnitude that have that that have, that have yet to be gained in terms of usage from this blockchain. So, saying that one has definitely you know uh, a uh, a network effect lead when the absolute numbers are so small um, feels a little uh, definitive. Right, that definitely makes a lot more sense because even with the uh, activity, the increase that happened in the past one year, I think we're still extremely early absolute number wise, even though the percentage numbers are really surprising. So like as to how that happens, right? As to how one of these lesser known uh, chains that came in later with and have lower activities take over like something as big as Ethereum, like how do you think, like what, what does it need for for that to happen? Like, is it the ecosystem? Is it the quality of like the applications that are coming out? Is it something that has to do with like a VC push or better marketing? Like, what do you think it's, it's going to take for 
something like Tezos to like really take over? Um, I think it can come from various places. Uh, if you look at Solana, for example, who um, who did a bit of a blitzkrieg, you know, in uh, l- last year, most of the developers are developers who had never touched um, the crypto space before, so they were very very um, effective at bringing in a lot of, uh, of new developers. I do think there were several tools to that. I think they are... Uh, the fact that they were backed by FTX, which has extremely deep pockets, helps them. Um, the fact that there's a lot of VCs pushing uh, uh, pushing Solana is also, uh, is also helping, so they're able to inject a ton of money in, uh, in, in Solana projects, plus they were new and hip. So they, they executed very well, um, that push. They also, I think, understood that no one cares about the float. So if you have a very, very small... Uh, uh, amount of your token in circulation, uh, and, if, and and you have some interest, it's very easy. You know, you can you can obtain very large market caps, and in a uh, you know in, in an equity market, having a very large market cap, you know, people will look at this and say like, oh, that's too expensive compared to revenues, blah blah blah. That plays against you um, in cryptocurrency uh, because these are very very different type of instruments. It doesn't really play against you. People look at this and say like, oh, that's a, that's a sign of success. So um, I think a lot of um, projects have been helped by having very small flows, which was completely anathema um, just a few years ago. A few years ago, you know, if you uh, if insiders kept more than you know like ten percent or something like that of uh, of the coin, then you were not decentralized, and uh, you you know you had no prospects of actually being a global store of value. It was completely uh, unthinkable. So that is uh, that has been a switch, and I think a lot of the new L ones have benefited from uh, from that. Interesting. So I think like a lot of criticism has also followed that strategy. And for me personally, I particularly think that this is more of a passing thing than something that's going to last. Because at some point, if your tokenomics is just 1% float and 90% investors, you know, dumping on retail, I don't think these ecosystems are going to go very far. So coming back to Tezos, like how are you uh, thinking about this, the ecosystem aspect of it, and what is the strategy that you are thinking to bootstrap the Tezos ecosystem into a really big one? Um, I mean, you know, I would say first the, the meta strategy uh, is to uh, the meta strategy is to be data driven, uh, try different experiments, see what works, double down on what works, and then stop what doesn't work. Uh, I, I think you know having a good meta strategy is more important than. Uh, and then your uh, then your strategy to begin with, because I don't think anyone has necessarily uh, a uh, um, perfect a priori knowledge of what's going to uh, what's going to stick in this market or not because it's so new. Um, and in general, in terms of strategy, what I've been trying to do is um, constantly try to uh, skate where the puck is going to be. So don't waste time with applications that are not going to go anywhere. Um, that's a big uh, that's a big thing. Sometimes you see things which are very very hyped and there's no fundamental reason why they can be sustainable or why they can last. So the benefit is that you can ride a hype cycle and maybe during this hype cycle that, you know, injects money into your ecosystem, you can build things and so on and so forth. But, you know, uh, the things end up falling uh, anyway and uh, you have to start uh, You have to start anew. So in general, I would say the focus has been to try to attract um, use cases that actually make sense and have staying power uh, on blockchains. Right. So on that note, like, you know, different blockchains seem to have like some sort of narrative attached to them when it comes to like what their ecosystem is best known for. So, for example, uh, 
FTM was doing a bunch of, you know, experimental DeFi stuff. Solana was like very, very, very uh, well known for DeFi stuff that required order book and HFT use cases, that type of thing, high frequency and uh, higher throughput. So what is the narrative that you guys have in mind for Tezos or is already in place for Tezos? Like what is it that Tezos does better than any other blockchain from an ecosystem point of view, if you can talk about that? Uh, there's a few ones that we have, that we do have. So um, one is evolution. That's a, of course a big one. Uh, Tezos is a blockchain that evolves. It has evolved already nine times in its uh, in its existence. Nine upgrade with a tenth upgrade being proposed right now. So the ability to constantly get better, I think, is quite uh, has been quite uh, uh, noticed. And it's not just about the governance procedure. It's also even you know with the governance procedure, we've we've built alongside the governance procedure the facilities to make it easy to upgrade. So the the, the ease of upgrade is an important one. Um, there's also the low energy consumption that has been a, a a big driver. Specifically, you know we have a lot of uh, art marketplaces on Tezos, and that has been a very important concern for artists. Um, the energy efficiency of the chain. So that's what you know. Uh, that's been one of the narratives around Tezos. Uh, another one has been a no bullshit attitude. A lot of people um, look at the space and they see a lot of nonsense, you know, uh, uh, unbacked stable coins or uh, obvious rug pulls or, you know, things that are not going to go anywhere. And they see, look at Tezos, they don't see all of that. They see products that make more sense. They also don't see uh, uh, this type of bluster uh, and, and, and nonsense talks that, that, that you see in, uh, in so many other uh, blockchains. So a, a reputation for seriousness and delivering um, and stability and security. So those are generally the, the memes around, uh, around the Tezos ecosystem. But I, you know, I, I say memes, but they, they are grounded in something real. We, we, we do upgrade and, we, and, 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 and I think uh, as a community, our culture is far more... Um, um, Makes sense. We care a lot more I about the truth than, <laughs> than other people. Yeah, I think like one of the uh, narrative points that has stood out to me personally, which I've seen a lot of people talk about is definitely the aspect around Tezos being climate friendly, Tezos being carbon neutral. So can you maybe talk about how that is achieved and like what exactly that means for a blockchain? Yeah, so uh, generally speaking, when, uh, when you have a proof of work blockchain, the way that you restrict participation in your blockchain is by saying, okay, you want to take part in a consensus. Uh, we don't want you to conduct a civil attack. So prove that you've burned some energy and then we'll reimburse you by inflation. That's the idea. It's like everyone burn energy uh, and we'll reimburse you. But because it's expensive to burn all this energy um, and if you cheat, you're not going to be reimbursed. Um, people are going to be honest. So that's the general idea behind Bitcoin. The issue is that it requires you for security to constantly be inflating. Um, and there's no reasonable argument that Bitcoin can sustain itself on uh, transaction fees alone. So, you know, the, the fact that you have a supply cap doesn't really help you if uh, if you lose security as uh, as your inflation rate dwindles. The, so that's the approach of proof of work. The approach of proof of stake is that you use um, token ownership to, dis- to decide membership inside of the consensus group. And uh, the nice thing about proof of stake is that you can have this asymmetry where you can pay a small reward to people who uh, uh, provide an honest service, uh, you know, to to cover the cost of their computers and such. And you can levy a massive penalty on people who misbehave. So you have a big asymmetry. Whereas in Bitcoin, you basically have to bribe everyone equally to act honestly, which is very expensive. In proof of stake, 
you can have a very low inflation rate. So not only do you know is it less costly in terms of inflation, but the money that you spend is you know it's actually spent on computers and on validating the network. It's not spent on hashing. So you end up with uh, you know like six or seven orders of magnitude, uh, you know a million to ten million less energy consumption. So you know I, so it, does it make it carbon neutral? So um, there's some consumption of of of, uh, of uh, of energy, right? Because you still have a, comp- you know, you still need to have a computer that runs somewhere uh, to process transactions, right? So there's always some consumption of energy, but it's minimal. There was a, a study showing that it was the equivalent carbon consumption of the entire Tesla's network was the, the consumption of like 17 people around the world. Like you take 17 people per year, it's spent amount, the same amount of energy. So it's pretty much the minimus. Got it. So is it, so from what I understand, you're basically saying that the design essentially minimizes how much energy is spent in order to obtain the security that Tezos has. The design minimizes the cost to obtain a given level of security. But as a side effect of that, it also uh, it, it, it also happens that uh, it's a lot less energy uh, consumption consuming because, well, it's expensive to, <laughs> if you want to cut the cost, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to cut the cost of all that energy consumption. Definitely. So we talked about the ethos and the, you know, core narrative behind the Tezos ecosystem, as well as, you know, some of the very interesting things like the climate efficiency and all that. But if we, if like getting into the ecosystem part a little bit more, can you talk a little bit about the actual state of where the ecosystem is right now? What are some of the key areas that have really been fleshed out? Some D apps that are seeing a lot of the activity that you guys are putting your weight behind? Uh, yeah, yeah. So we've seen a lot of growth in the uh, NFT space. Um, uh, I would say probably the most used app on Tezos is uh, Object.com, which is an NFT marketplace. Um, but they are also, uh, it's, it's a generic NFT marketplace. You can take any NFT on Tezos and buy it and sell it on uh, Object.com, auction it. Uh, they're also specialized marketplaces uh, around, you know, uh, NFT art like um, FXHash, uh, Versum, 8Bidu, Teya. So a lot of um, a lot of NFT projects in the art space that has been a a, a big engine for growth in this uh, uh, in this ecosystem, and it all uh, came out of uh, one very successful project called Hekenug. Um We also have some uh, activity around NFTs in the gaming space. So Ubisoft launched a uh, a platform called Quartz uh, for uni- for uh, in-game NFTs, which is based on uh, on, uh, on Tezos. Uh, there were also some NFTs released as part of EVE Online um, and uh, a gaming company called Interpop, which is uh, doing uh, casual games, uh, collectri- uh, collectible card games and uh, comic books uh, on, on a Tezos chain. Um, they are games like Dogami, uh, which is a play-to-earn game with uh, virtual dogs, uh, 3D dogs that you can see in uh, advanced realities. They are games like Pixel Potus, uh, Testopia, so, you know, a, a, a whole host of, uh, of games. Uh, we have some DeFi activity with projects like KeepuSwap, Plenty, <coughs> sorry, um, Ubinetic and and, uh, and 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 a youth project, Vortex. So, uh, and I'm sorry for everyone that I'm forgetting right now. I don't have a list in front of me, but there's uh, they are a lot. They 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 are a lot of of those uh, DeFi projects launching on a chain. And uh, I would say, yeah, gaming, NFTs, and uh, uh, and and DeFi that covers a, a broad uh, a broad spectrum of activity on uh, on the chain. I think that really uh, 
puts into perspective as to how the ecosystem looks like today but in terms of like the value as to why somebody would be using these chains and using tezos right mm-hmm. a marketplace on tezos versus doing that on solana or ethereum like is there some value add on being in the tezos ecosystem versus using a similar app outside and why i'm asking this is for like a deeper question because i think like the past one year one trend that i have personally seen come up which is a bit dystopic for crypto is that people are essentially building the next uniswap again and again reinventing the same thing on a different chain just to be early on that chain and get rich off of that ecosystem so uh, i'm trying to understand like is the uh, activity that's happening on tezos has like some intrinsic mode to it or is it mostly in your opinion around essentially reinventing the same thing so you can be early on this ecosystem because you weren't early on ethereum and likewise oh no absolutely not there's a lot of things that are completely new on tezos that have not been done on uh, on ethereum like specifically in the uh, in the art space lots of very uh, conceptual websites so um you know yes there are some you know like there are some me2 projects people who uh, who take projects from ethereum successful product from ethereum and brings them to tezos uh, and, and, and by the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And, you know, by all means, I'm, uh, I'm hoping more people do this. You know, if you, uh, if you see some successes on, uh, on Ethereum and want to bring them to Tezos, uh, talk to me. I'm happy to help you do that. Um, but no, lots of, lots of really innovative things. Uh, you know, if you take object.com, for example, I think it's the best NFT marketplace I've seen anywhere. Uh, it's much better than, uh, it's much better than OpenCZ. UX is phenomenal. If you look at the stuff that Interpop is building, also it doesn't have equivalents. Um, so, you know, like, can, can this be replicated on other chains possibly? But, you know, at the end of the day, the, the things which are hard to replicate are culture and community. You can't fork that very easily. And we have a really great uh, community that's very, very welcoming of newcomers, uh, very welcoming of developers, great uh, developer tooling. Um, in the art space specifically, a, a fantastic community of, uh, of, uh, of artists and contributors and builders. So... You know, I don't. You know, I don't want to call that a moat because <laughs> they are these are people, these are culture. But like you know, this is why you create um, those platforms for in the first place is for for people to come together, and we're seeing all of that. Understood. I think that's definitely true, especially if if you're if you have a sizable community that is only focused on one ecosystem and not like also into six other ecosystems trying to profit off of the new one. And what I want to ask next is like, how are you guys thinking about expanding this culture and community of yours and bring people from, let's say, other chains, uh, dApps or users? Is it going to be through like multi-chain bridges? Is it through incentive programs, ecosystem fund? How is that sort of being thought for Tezos? I would say part of it is... um... Building better the well, I think we have really good developer tools, by the way. So when it, it was um, one area where we were quite weak for a few years, but now I see developers coming into this ecosystem from Ethereum and say, "Oh my God, I love the developer tooling so much." So having um, keep building uh, great developer tools is a um, is a good approach. Hackathons, we're looking at ecosystem funds. So uh, you know all, all the things that you've uh, that, that you've mentioned, but also you know. Um, Generally uh, speaking, ensuring um, good integration. That means that uh, middleware vendors uh, and integrators can uh, uh, easily support Tezos so that if you choose it, um, you know you have access to custodians, you have access to uh, this network of, uh, of vendors and providers that, uh, that, that lets you build. Makes sense. So 
but what is in your view on like say the multi chain future is so that, is that something that you guys are actively working towards building strong bridges to networks that have much more liquidity as to find a way to like port some of that liquidity to tesos or do you think that the future is siloed chains and uh you know very thin bridges between them so for me when people say the filter is multi chain i don't think it's because multi chain is somehow superior in a way I mean, maybe that's what they mean. Maybe people say like, oh, you know, the, the, the superior right. solution is to have multiple chains which interact with each other. That's the better outcome. I don't, I, for me, the, when we say the future is multi-chain, it's more of a statement about the ultimate outcome. So you can think of it as uh, crystallization. If you have a, um, you know, you, you put a uh, salt in saturation in water and then you let it, you know, you let the water evaporate. Um, and it had, if that happens very, very fast, you end up with a ton of very small crystals everywhere. If it happens extremely slowly, you can end up with a, you can end you know you can end up with a single crystal, and uh, anything in between you can end up with a few crystals, maybe like a big one and a few small ones, and that's basically what I think is going to happen to this uh, to, to this space. You know, you have a uh, you have a lot of uh, of entropy right now, a lot of motion. It's a, it's a small space. More people are coming, so a lot of uh, a lot of volatility, a lot of things can happen, and then progressively. Uh, positions get more and more entrenched, and um, you end up with uh, you know you you you, the, the, you end up with more and more organized system until you have a crystallization, and then you have different chains which have their own network effect, um, and it you know and and, and it's costly to uh, to um, it's costly to, to 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 reconfigure one into being the other. So that's for me is the outcome. It's not something that somehow you know we should be driving towards or that has like intrinsic benefits. Now in this world. Uh, of course, people are going to um, to build bridges, but the 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 reason we might have a multi-chain future is precisely because those bridges don't work very well. If uh, you know, if 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 you had very, if it was easy to make very very good bridges um, between chains, you might say, well, you know, the network effect might move away because it will be uh, sucked away by bridges. Uh, there are fundamental difficulties in making bridges between uh, between blockchains, even if you take a uh, uh, an ecosystem like Cosmos, which is extremely focused on having bridges between blockchain, that's, you know, the entire uh, uh, shtick, um, it's still only like client security that you get. Uh, fundamentally, consensus is not something that you can port very uh, easily. And if you look at every, you know, if, if if we could have easy working bridges, we would have, you know, some form of like solution to the scaling problem. But you don't. Um, you Unless you have your validators of your chain actually validate all the other chains, then they are making some weak, you know, they are weakening their security assumption in doing the bridge. Uh, we see it in practice with a lot of, uh, of of bridge hacks. It's it's really really hard to run uh, secure bridges. So will there be bridges? Yes. Um, and in general, <laughs> the the thing is like when when people tell you it's a multi chain future, uh, generally they want to bring some activity from your chain to their chain. <laughs> oh, you know, we have this great marketplace on our chain. Build a bridge to our chain, and uh, and you know, and the future is multi chain. Great, uh, I, I think that's a, you know that, that that's that's an obvious trap, right? I don't think it's in anyone's benefit to outsource their activity to another chain uh, in the name of uh, the future being multi-chain. Now, I'm more than happy for uh, people to bridge assets to Tezos uh, to use uh, to use them on uh, on Tezos, but ultimately, I think the value capture for a blockchain is around secondary marketplaces, uh, is around all the uh, activities that happens with the assets. So, you know, you don't want you you, you want to be the place where 
people settle their assets, uh, not not the place where uh, people move their uh, assets away from. Correct. No, I think you're definitely right. I think the reason why multi-chain narrative has taken off really well is largely because of like the market situation where you have a lot of liquidity trapped on these ecosystems where it's really expensive to actually do stuff. And then you have these chains where there's not much liquidity, but then you know, it's just much more efficient and maybe a better user experience. And that's probably why there's so much charter around why people want to move stuff around. But I think ultimately from both security and user experience point of view, it's probably ideal for native assets to uh, work on the chain that and be settled, you know, on the chain that they were designed to be on. So I agree with that. But I think like as someone who's putting all his weight behind and leading this entire Elven ecosystem, it's interesting to sort of have your opinion on it because I think right now it's definitely multi-chain is helping the smaller chains more than the bigger chains, right? Wouldn't you say that? Because it's getting you liquidity users and even developers or whatnot to have incentives to build on your chain and I, I don't think it's uh, a, I don't think it's a matter of size. I think it's a matter of uh... I so, so uh, there's a matter of size, there's a matter of cost, right? So you know, let's say you yeah. have a two-way bridge for uh, with Ethereum, uh, with with Ethereum having you know hundred dollar type you know transactions, it's not super attractive for people to bridge assets to Ethereum to trade them. You know, you, you might as well stay on uh, on the chain where they're in. Why would you uh, why would you bridge it? Whereas in the other way, you have a cost benefit where you can say like, look, bridge your asset, and then it's going to be a lot cheaper to uh, to trade them. Which was you know the play done by uh, Binance Smart Chain, Avalanche, and Polygon. So it's not so much a matter of size. And then, the, you know, if, if, on top of that, of course, if you're, if, you're, if, if you're very small and you have a bridge, and even if the fees are comparable, you might say that, well, you know, this might help the big chain, but it might, you know, but, but proportionally, uh, it's going to help me more because they're so much bigger um, than it's going to help them. But, uh, you know, be, between peers uh, in general, that, then it's a, lot more, uh, it's a lot more competitive. Agreed. That was that was definitely an interesting take. And my last question to you would be around, you know, how does someone who's like uninitiated into the Tezos ecosystem, the Tezos cult, get started? So I want to hear this from you directly as to how does someone who's currently, you know, dabbling with some blockchains, maybe just Ethereum or BNB, or maybe even just an exchange user, how can they get started within the Tezos community ecosystem on different levels? What are some of the easiest ways to get into the, you know, the culture that you just talked about? Well, um, if you go uh, head to Tezos.com, at the bottom, you'll see a list of uh, social links. Uh, it can link you to our uh, Twitter uh, handle, uh, Reddit community, Discord servers, Telegram. So all of these are great places to start if you want to meet uh, uh, people and start talking. Uh, if you're looking specifically for developer resources, um, there's a developer portal on the website, but I think the, the best one that exists today is uh, opentezos.com. That's O-P-E-N-T-E-Z-O-S.com. has a lot of great resources for getting started as developers. But I would say, I, I don't think anyone, is, uh, the experience for developers shouldn't be that you just go to a dev portal and then you read the documentation, build something. You know, the, the, the value, a lot of it comes from like being embedded in this community of developers. So I do uh, recommend checking out the social links. Interesting. I think that that would be extremely helpful for anyone sort of interested to dabble around with the ecosystem. 
and with that i'd like to you know thank you arthur for joining us today on the podcast and sharing your views on a bunch of stuff including educating us on tezos and its ecosystem all right thank you very much for having me